Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. Thank you all for being here for another Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut, and of course, we're very glad to have you with us as we uh, go through another shelter-in-place edition of the show. Before I introduce the panel, a few notes. Number one, my thanks to Kevin Riley, who filled in for me on Political Rewind yesterday, dealing with some political, uh, <laughs> dealing with some personal uh, issues in in our family. And later in the week, I'm probably going to talk to you a little bit about that because I've felt that during this pandemic, being able to share what we're going through personally, it's not that anything I'm going through is more important than what you are. In fact, it's just the opposite. It really is a case of all of us being in here together. But that's for another time. Um, before, again, we introduce the panel, uh, let's just go over quickly the figures from the Department of Public Health. Uh, we uh, have reports of another 49 people dying of the virus in the last 24 hours. The reports came in during the last 24 hours. We're now up to 1,295 deaths in Georgia. And uh, the hospitalizations continue uh, to go up as well. Um, All right, let's do this. Let's get to the panel. We've got a lot to talk about today. Uh, So we are joined, as we are every every Wednesday, by AJC political reporter Greg Bluestein, who has been all over the state reporting on politics and the virus. Also joining us today, Mary Margaret Oliver, state representative from Decatur and a member of the Appropriations Committee. We'll be talking to her about the budget issues that the state faces. And former state representative Edward Lindsay of Atlanta. He's now a partner and the head of the Government Affairs Department for the state of Georgia at Denton's the world's largest law firm. So let's get right to the conversation uh, with everybody. Thank you all so much for being here today. The governor has now requested, not requested, ordered 14% cuts across all agencies. No exceptions this time. Uh, Greg, that's an enormous, that's what, some, how many billions of dollars they need to cut out of the budget? It's going to be at least $3.5 billion, and it means that layoffs and furloughs are for, 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 empl- for some of the states, hundreds of thousands of employees are, are almost a certainty. Um, and, and by the way, that's just kind of the start. I don't want to mean to be too sour, but um, uh, budget writers expect that to just be kind of the floor, and there could be more um, down the road. So as we talk about the state budget, it's always important for me to uh, give this disclaimer Georgia Public Broadcasting is an agency of state government, and so uh, GPB will uh, be taking big budget cuts, too. But as I always also say when I point that out, uh, it's important that you know that the programming that we bring to you, whether it's Political Rewind, All Things Considered, Morning Edition, or whatever, is not funded by state money. That comes from donations from listeners and viewers to our PBS uh, station. Our salaries are paid out of those donations. So while the while GPB in general does have state money, it does not go to help bring programs like ours to you. All right. I just want to make that clear. All right. So Mary Margaret, here's here's the you, I know your biggest concern, and I'll let you speak to this, is uh, in terms of what happens to health care and particularly uh, uh, Medicaid funding in the middle of a pandemic. Right. I think we're in a terrible situation, Uh, and I don't think that I'm unique in saying that. This is the worst budget crisis in my long political career, and what has got me most uh, obsessed, of course, I do have time on my hand being at home to worry about all this, we do not know what the benefits are going to be of the stimulus, a variety of stimulus packages. There's just a long list of things we do not know. But I do believe it's true that the governor's request for requirement of 14 percent decrease in the budget does not consider one dime of the reserve fund of $2.8 billion. Uh, As a budget, as appropriation member, I'm not going to accept the fact that we are going to slash services, furlough teachers, and end uh, 
health care for uh, Georgia's poor citizens when we are not going to touch the reserve fund. So what is the governor's commitment? What is his idea? What's his uh, advice on what he's going to do with the $2.8 billion reserve fund? It is a rainy day, and that is the rainy day fund. Secondly, I'm reading in the AJC, and nowhere else am I picking up this information, that uh, K through 12 yesterday received $457 million of stimulus money. DeKalb County and my district school system gets the largest share of that money, $33 million. Uh, City of Decatur system in my district gets the smallest share, $300,000. Um, it's a Title I formula. I read in the AJC that Regents is getting 300 and I think $27 million from stimulus money. That's based on stimulus money already passed and already received and in Georgia. And DeKalb County, Mike Thurman received $132 million. The point of, of my obsessing about these numbers is where is that money going? How is that money filling holes? How are we considering all of these things that are in both in the bank and in the air right now about the $4 billion that Georgia might be entitled to receive just under what's passed, not to mention what Congress is going to do next? There's way too many things out there that I don't know that I have to be, have to be informed about before I can accept a 14% budget cut. Well, first off... Um if, if I can sort of step in, Bill, uh, a little historical perspective here might be a good thing, because Mary Margaret and I were both in the General Assembly in 2009. And as a matter of fact, I chaired in 2009 the Education Appropriations Subcommittee. At that time, we, we thought everything was going to be difficult because uh, we were having to make a $3.8 billion cut uh, that year, uh, going from 21.2 to 17.4 billion dollars in one year. The difference then and now is that we had several months to work with the number crunchers and work with each other to try to figure out what programs to protect, what programs needed to be trimmed, and what programs needed to be slashed. Uh, Mary Margaret and the General Assembly this year is going to be having to make these decisions remotely. Uh, and without really knowing where the bottom is, as Mary Margaret has said, because there is a lot of uh, unknowns out there that they're having to contend with, which is a good reason for why they don't need to come back until June rather than try to push and come back now. Uh, the fact of the matter is a lot of the money that the state has received so far uh, ha is tied specifically to dealing with the uh, pandemic. Uh, for instance, uh, DeKalb County has received, I believe, around $126 million and change. Uh, but that money is specifically tied to dealing with the pandemic. It is not to be simply just supplement their, their budget. What is still unknown, and this is what Mary Margaret is concerned about, and she's quite right, is the unknown as to what comes in the next aid package, uh, mm -hmm. which uh, is being debated to determine uh, whether to help uh, state and local governments fill the deficits that are being created economically, not necessarily dealing specifically with the pandemic. And that's still an unknown. There, I think the figure is around $500 billion is what they're looking for, what exactly will be in that and who will be getting what, and whether or not there are any strings attached to it is still something that's being debated in the General Assembly. But, uh, but you know, when it comes to the rainy day fund, we, ha we were also dealing with the same issue back in 2009, and that's simply a matter of negotiation between the General Assembly and the governor. As Mary Margaret pointed out, uh, there are a lot of legislators who are going to want to know how much uh, is the governor ultimately willing to dip into the rainy day fund and how much is the uh, General Assembly prepared to push the governor to do so uh, mm -hmm. in order to try to balance the budget for the next, for the next year. That's I'll tell you right now, so great. the budget that was proposed by the governor in 2009 was the ultimate budget that was passed looked very different from the one originally proposed by the governor, and I expect the General Assembly to do the same this year. Uh, Greg, so let's pick up on what Edward just talked about. Uh, first of all, we know that in Washington, 
there is some uh, dispute over whether or not the next package of aid should or should not go to state and local governments. Uh, Majority Leader McConnell has uh, held back on that uh, pretty uh, consistently. Uh, And yet at the same time, as uh, Edward points out, uh, Appropriations uh, Chair Terry England and others at uh, the legislature here have joined uh, leaders from around the country, elected officials from around the country, saying to the federal government, you have to help us. And I think, uh, uh, Greg, the number that Georgia is suggesting it needs is, as I think Edward pointed out, something like $500 billion. There's no assurance that Congress and the White House are going to be able to come to an agreement that would uh, help uh, Georgia or the other states, right? No, not at all. Um, and, and, of course, partisan politics is, is involved in all this, too, with a lot of rhetoric about blue state bailouts going on right now. But, of course, it's, it's, all, it's blue and red states. All states are, are, are pretty much demanding um, a more another package of stimulus dollars. And it's not clear even if the states get that, if there will be strings attached, if it will be a you know, block grant that gives states flexibility to use it how they see, or if it will be tied to certain programs or certain, certain expenditures. And, and, and Representative Oliver is right, too. We have about uh, close to $3 billion, $2.7 billion in reserve fund. Um, I'm not exactly sure why, um, why the governor and why lawmakers haven't wanted to dip further into it. I know that $100 million of it already has been tapped for uh, PPE and other emergency expenditures, um, mm-hmm. you know, such as uh, hospital capacity expansions. Um, but I think from what we've reported, the fear is that that entire windfall, that entire reserve fund could be wiped out, you know, in a, in a flash, and that it wouldn't give you any more padding in case there's an additional emergencies because no one knows how long this, this crisis will last. Well, to, to Greg's point, that's exactly why I expect the governor, not at this point, saying that he's going to dip to, into the reserve fund until he has a better, clearer idea as to where the bottom is. Uh, because you don't want to wipe everything out now and then in six months not have anything at all uh, to to dip back into. I do suspect at some point there will be some of that money will be released and probably will have to be released again next year as well. The question is how much. And given the uncertainties, I would expect the governor to be very conservative in terms of how much he's prepared to say he's going to release at this present moment. I don't expect the governor to tell me that what he's going to do about the, the uh, $2.8 billion. But we're starting our Appropriations Committee meeting tomorrow uh, by Zoom. Uh, our economic forecast, Dr. Dorfman from uh, Athens, will tell us what he thinks is going to happen. When he came in January 2020, he told us he didn't know what was going to happen, and that was before the pandemic. He said it was 50-50 as to what would happen, up or down. And I expect him tomorrow to be more detailed in why he doesn't know what's going to happen in the next quarter or in the next four quarters. We are in such a land of unknowns with so many different numbers in the air. And the opportunity that I want to insist upon is that we maximize Georgia's position to pull down stimulus money. And we have not met historically not maximize Georgia's entitlement to federal money, and we have to be more savvy and more aggressive. For instance, I'll give you this for instance, and I've been uh, obsessing about, we have a pending Medicaid waiver uh, in front of CMS that is a very limited waiver to uh, give uh, additional medical relief, medical coverage under Medicaid. It is time to amend that waiver to at least say, as a minimum say, that all medical costs of COVID shall be covered by Medicaid-eligible citizens. That would be a very minimal amendment to make. We also should amend our Medicaid to up the opportunity for rural health care to be enhanced. There's a variety of ways to do that that we know from smart people. The Medicaid waiver issue is very ripe right now for amendment, expansion of our entitlement to federal money, which, as we know, is a 90% federal match for our only 10% obligation, based on the main community health options that the United States Supreme Court issued last week that is going to upheld, uphold the provision of the ACA that was, uh, that was reduced or eliminated by 
uh, Republicans, uh, that guarantees insurance companies $12 billion. Blue Cross and Kaiser are busy right now trying to figure out how they can benefit from a $12 billion entitlement that the Supreme Court says are, that is on the way. And how are we participating, we budget writers, to understand how that can help Georgia citizens? Well, I want to give you some more figures to worry about and then go around and ask each of you to respond to it. I, I was looking this morning at a study from Health Management Associates, which is a firm, a national firm that does have an office right here in Atlanta. They do a lot of data crunching for uh, local and uh, state governments, federal government as well. They work with foundations and uh, they have, obviously their number one concern is health care in the United States. They've been looking at how the economic downturn may make an impact in all 50 states. And here's what they say about Georgia. Um, Under the worst case scenario in terms of unemployment, a high unemployment scenario in Georgia, which does seem relatively likely if we've not already reached it at this point, we would have... an additional burden in terms of Medicaid, uh, people needing Medicaid, of 567,000 new Medicaid pieces at the people. At the same time, uh, group insurance, employer-sponsored group insurance, because of uh, companies that are closing down, furloughing, laying off, group insurance would fall by 1.13 million people covered uh, in, in in that way, and and so this is Greg Bluestein. When you think about numbers like this, and then think of what Mary Margaret and the other budget writers are going to have to deal mm-hmm. with, and her talking about you know expanding Medicaid in the broadest way possible to help it, those figures are startling. They're staggering. I mean, look, remember in November of last year, one of the biggest stories in Georgia politics, at least, was was Kemp had, the governor had finally unveiled this, these waiver plans. Um, that he said would 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 allow more flexibility, um, but of course um, the critics said would would essentially um, you know not not fully continue to not fully expand Medicaid. Well, all these plans I'm imagining are just going to be in tatters now um, because uh, it, it still has gotten final approval. But um, the entire calculations that underpinned all these all these proposals are now going to be completely thrown up in the air because of all the additional people seeking medical coverage now because of this pandemic. Well, what's scary here, and, and, and those figures are scary, is that folks need to understand that the difference between Medicaid coverage and, and, and care and health care. Uh, one of the concerns that, that a lot of folks had about expanding Medicaid without changing uh, the amount of, of the number of providers available to Medicaid recipients is that we were going to overburden the system that was already straining because of the number of doctors, for instance, that were not prepared to accept any more or accept any Medicaid patients. So what is scary about this is that while we are likely, as that study shows, to have an increase in, in the number of Medicaid recipients, we don't necessarily have a system set up to uh, to meet all of their health care needs because of the number of health care providers that are, are out there willing to take Medicaid. Now, that's likely to change, too, but that has to be part of the equation uh, when it comes to uh, what we do from here in terms of trying to get the number of providers increased to accept uh, the, these increase in Medicaid patients. I just don't think that last uh, Mary year- Margaret, i got to get to a break, but bef- go ahead, Mary Margaret. I just don't think that last year's thinking about Medicaid expansion, uh, focusing on workforce issues, is as relevant in this catastrophe that we have right now. I think that 20% of the people coming out of the hospital with the virus are going to have permanent lung damage, 20% perhaps permanent lung damage. This is a medical issue that's new. It's not part of 2018-19 thinking. We have to be more aggressive, and we have to be ready for the disaster that we're facing, which I fear uh, we don't have enough information yet. Tag this. Mary Morgan and I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, that doesn't surprise me a whole lot. One last quick thing before we get to uh, the break, Greg. I, I think all of us 
who pay attention to uh, uh, Georgia politics are wondering, you know, Governor Kemp's signature issue, his showcase issue, of course, has been teacher pay raises. He's already uh, been able to accomplish uh, a part of that. But what happens to I mean, is there any way that this these budget cuts can still accommodate his need for what does he need? Another two thousand dollars to uh, Greg to uh, to fulfill yeah. his his pledge of five thousand dollars. And if he is going to give that promise, where does that money wh- who doesn't get that money? Yeah, I think that's got to be out the door right now. It's hard to imagine that happening. I think I think the, the goal will be trying to not to furlough teachers and, and to cut staffers. Uh, in the education department, rather than trying to give them an additional pay raise at this at this juncture, it'll be really hard to see him moving forward. And same thing with House Speaker David Ralston moving forward on his pledge to to cut uh, tax rates. Um, it'll be <laughs> the the fights of just a few months ago now seem really far in the rearview mirror. Well, keep in mind, yeah. Bill, that on your show you made news about a month ago, in which the speaker uh, went to these points and he said uh, very strongly on this show that uh, that unfortunately the talk of teacher pay raises was no longer on the table and the talk of any additional tax cuts were also off the table given uh, this extreme crisis we're going under. Okay, we got to get to a break. The question there, of course, will become whether Governor Kemp will agree with uh, Speaker Ralston on that issue. It is hard to imagine that the governor would try to force that on a legislature that has already said it's skeptical about being able to do that sort of thing. Let's do this. Let's get to a break. And when we come back, we'll continue. Thank goodness with the entire panel on Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. We're back on Political Rewind today with uh, Edward Lindsay, Mary Margaret Oliver, and Greg Bluestein. Um, I, I want to talk uh, politics and, and the coronavirus uh, f- for a little while, if I can. Greg Bluestein, um, <coughs> excuse me, we continue to watch this kind of odd dance between Governor Kemp and President Trump over how President Trump feels about the fact that Governor Kemp became the first one to really say, yeah, we're opening the state up broadly for uh, business. Uh, with, with certain restrictions, we get that. So, for instance, here's what we know uh, the president said when, when uh, the governor first announced he was going to start opening things up again. I want the states to open more than he does, much more than he does. But I didn't like to see spas at this early stage, nor did the doctors. Is that a correct statement, Deborah? I didn't like to see spas opening, frankly. I didn't like to see a lot of things happening, and I wasn't happy with it. And I wasn't happy with Brian Kemp. I wasn't at all happy because, and I could have done something about it if I wanted to, but I'm saying let the governors do it. But I wasn't happy with Brian Kemp. Spas, beauty parlors, tattoo parlors, uh, no. So, Greg Bluestein, you probably would know this better than anyone. I assume that Governor Kemp and his people were completely gobsmacked when they heard the president uh, uh, criticize him because apparently he had said just the day before on a phone call with Vice President Kemp, uh, <laughs> Vice President Pence as well as uh, 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 the governor that he, he liked what was happening. All right. That said, we now hear from the president this week that, nah, he never— criticized Governor Kemp. He's glad that Governor Kemp is moving forward. What do you make of all this? And what should residents of Georgia make of this bizarre dance, which leaves us kind of confused about how safe it is for us to be out there in the world? By the way, gobsmacked is an underappreciated word. I, I think my head's still spinning from, from all the last couple of weeks between the president and, and the governor. I mean, the governor stayed silent. I asked him directly, uh, what the president told them on that phone call, because we, we, we reported previously that 
that uh, he was told the president uh, supported his his initiative to start phasing in parts of Georgia's economy. Um, part of being president, I guess, means never having to say you're sorry. So he unsaid what he said um, just a couple of days ago, saying he never. Uh, his direct quote was, um, "You know, I, uh, I never really said that." Um, <laughs> so um, yeah. he said, "I didn't like the particular place, the spa tattoo parlor, but he thinks that overall it's wonderful what Georgia did." Um, so uh, clearly, there were heads spinning in the governor's office too over over the uh, the quick, you know, back and forth and the quick reversal. Um, but it seems like it's it, that too is in the rearview mirror. Although we'll see how close those two politicians get in the run-up to November if, if the governor shows up at a Trump rally or or as enthusiastically or as enthusiastically supportive of him as he was, let's say, last year. Uh, you know, in, in my spare time, I, I do go on my Facebook and, and read some of my more conservative groups' uh, discussions. And what I found interesting, and this isn't uh, analytical, but it is kind of interesting, is how little a discussion that was between uh, the uh, between the difference between the governor and the and the president among among folks that that would be probably the most likely to speak on that. I was rather uh, fascinated by how little discussion there was in terms of well, I back the governor or I back the president. I think in times like this, a lot of folks are just going, okay, you know. Uh, you know, how safe is it to go out there and when can I start earning a living again? Uh, that's their primary concern and everything else is a sideshow. And I might also add that I, I certainly hope that, that this governor and any other governor is more concerned about trying to balance the, the needs of their their constituents uh, in terms of their health care needs and the economic crisis they're facing them on whether or not uh, another politician agrees with them or not, and for that matter, whether or not a particular poll number is good or bad. Under the heading of sideshow, I don't believe that very few. I don't believe that people have put a lot of weight in believing what uh, President Trump says in relation to his criticism of anybody. Um, obviously, he's you know his, his consistency about being a disruptor and a and a critic of is an hourly thing that is not consistent in any way. So I don't think Governor Kemp should be gobsmacked by anything the president says. And I think that it's a further reflection of the fact that we cannot have a whole lot of faith or trust in what the president's mood is at 2 p.m. versus Wednesday, 2 p.m. versus Thursday, 4 p.m. Yeah. The the bigger question here is is what is working and what's not working uh, in the the various states. Uh, you you look you you look at the different states, and it's really quite fascinating to see what's going on in those states, particularly states that are of similar size to Georgia. Uh, you know, comparing, for instance, Georgia and Michigan, which have taken, you know, in both states they are they they are urging distancing and they are urging safe practices. In Michigan, they are being much more one of a better term, severe in terms of trying to shut down the state than Georgia is. Uh, both states, like I said, have about the similar population. The interesting thing is, at least at the present time, uh, uh, Michigan has about two and a half times more reported cases and about three times more deaths than Georgia does. That doesn't mean that Georgia is 100% right and Michigan is on the wrong track, but it is sort of going to be interesting to see as we go through this entire process, uh, which states' uh, programs are working better than others? That's what I'm more interested in, is what is actually working and what not working uh, at any particular time. Ed, I agree with you. And our comparison to North Carolina is pretty fascinating. Uh, North Carolina, similar population, uh, obviously adjoining us. uh, Statistics have been much better than Georgia. So these are things that we... We really don't understand yet in in the same way, and this is what come back to the dangerousness of physical uh, and emotional and financial danger we're in right now. We do not know what the impact of this virus is on individuals. We do not know how it's going to act in the summer or the fall. We do not know whether antibodies are going to mean that we can't get it again. Those are fairly fundamental questions about basic health that are unknown to us in the middle of a financial crisis. Yeah, and and we're also so having Greg, to deal with I, folks I, who have medical issues too. 
I take the point that both Edward and Mary Margaret are making, that the Trump show is what it is. It is something of a sideshow. It always will be. But, but Greg, here's why I think it is significant that we've seen this back and forth. The thing that every poll, every national poll that we've seen, we haven't had a clear poll about this in Georgia yet, but every national poll says that by wide majorities, people are still afraid that they're going to get COVID. They are still afraid about being outside, being out back, going shopping and that sort of thing. And in fact, if you go back to that University of Georgia poll, which I think came out on April 28th at this point, Mm -hmm. and I think it's important to point out, Greg, that that poll was taken, it was in the field after Governor Kemp announced the first restrictions being mm-hmm. lifted, allowing massage therapy, uh, 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 businesses, uh, tattoo parlors, all the things we know about, beauty shops, uh, barbershops, that sort of thing, restaurants. That was at that point. Um, and at that point, before he had gone ahead and said, no, shelter in place, we're dismissing it, you should just take personal safeguards. But at that point, the question of whether how people felt about Kemp's plans to re- reopen business was this. 43% strongly disapproved, 19% somewhat disapproved, only 24% either somewhat approved or strongly approved. And, and so, Greg, it strikes me that the reason that this dance matters is that people are afraid and don't have the confidence that they might need if you're talking about, come on, folks, get out there and shop. Go to Lenox Mall. Go to the mall in Savannah, in Albany. People are still afraid to do that. And so the dance in some ways does matter. It does, and it's important to note, too, that it's, it's by broad bipartisan consensus that, that a majority of Republicans and a majority of Democrats both said those things you just enumerated, that, that, they, that they favored uh, you know, continuing um, uh, shelter in place, that they favored business restrictions, that they favored that they were worried about contracting the coronavirus, and that they supported government restrictions. Um, there's another national poll, but it polled each individual state, too, that came out from civics, um, a, a national polling firm. And this was done over the course of a few of, of, of multiple months. But it showed Georgia was the only state in the nation where there was a, ne- a negative net dissatisfaction rate with the local government's response to coronavirus. Every other state had a positive um, a net satisfaction rate. So it shows that there is an undercurrent of, of concern from Georgians about the way the government is handling this. And, and, and I think part of it's, you know, you've, you've got you've, you had both President Trump and, and and leading Georgia Democrats, as well as public health experts, all urging Georgia to take caution about the, the, the moves it made. And, and as, as everyone on this panel has mentioned, we won't know the outcome of those for a few more weeks, whether or not it was it was it was the right move or, or not. That's that's the difficult thing. Just because we're seeing people out and about more and more now doesn't mean it was necessarily, uh, you know, the best move. Well, if I can interject something here, and, and this is not a, a positive thing, but it's the, the reality. The reality is if people are afraid they're going to contract the coronavirus, that's a good fear because they probably will. At least mm-hmm. a large number of us still will. The question is, and this is what flattening the curve is all about, is are we going to have the capability of our hospitals to care for those folks who do contract it and have the most serious conditions? And will there be medical treatment uh, that is still being put together to be able to to deal with those folks who have the serious issues to sort of bring down the death rates. And in the long run, uh, are we going to be able to keep those things at, at such a level that we can uh, survive until a vaccine is available sometime early, hopefully early next year? Those are the unknowns. And at the same time, uh, we do have to to respect the fact that a lot of folks are suffering enormously economically and and try to deal with those issues, including where we can safely reopen uh, the economy and, and and put in place the necessary guardrails to protect citizens who do participate in the economy. Mary Margaret, I'll give you the last word on uh, this segment. I, 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 we have talked on this show many times about the difficult decision that Governor Kemp and, and governors across the country, uh, mayors in this state, 
have had to make in terms of uh, protecting safe public safety and at the same time watching their economies dissolve and wanting to do something. We no, nobody doubts that this is a very difficult uh, decision that has to be made. But Mary Margaret, uh, Lenox Mall opened again yesterday, Monday. And uh, most of the stores were closed, but those that were open reported almost no business. Uh, it, 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 and other stores have experienced the same thing. Uh, so in an odd way, uh, when you start opening things up for business, if uh, people don't have confidence to get out there and shop, all you're doing is running up new expenses for the stores that suddenly now are, you know, uh, in some cases, recalling workers they've laid off. They've got to pay to get their stores open. I, I, I'm not sure I understand the, uh, the math here. I agree that uh, people are afraid to go out, and there's a growing sense of dangerousness. I feel it more now than I did a month ago. Um, but here, here's what is, makes this much more difficult in which I focus on. We have the highest child poverty rate of any of the top 10 most highly populated states. We have a higher uninsured rate than, I don't know, almost any other state. We have a failing health care system, particularly in rural areas, but significantly impacting poor people across the state. These decisions about basic health are being made on that context of who Georgians are. Not only are we going to have a 15 to 20 percent unemployment rate, not only are we a million people going to lose health insurance, all of that is on top of what is a disastrously unequal application and extension of health care services in Georgia, which is evidenced more by this virus than almost any other thing in my long political career. All right, let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way and come back and talk a bit more about politics on Political Rewind. We're back. Uh, Greg Lucien, I, I frankly don't remember whether this was your byline or not, but I know you'll be on top of it, whether it was or not. Uh, Renee Unterman released a really interesting uh, commercial attacking uh, one of her opponents in the 7th District uh, GOP uh, uh, race, uh, race for Congress. Uh, let's listen to the spot and then talk about why it is an interesting uh, message to be sending out. Here it is. Rich McCormick refused to vote for President Trump against Hillary. No wonder he's financed by the same swamp creatures who spent millions attacking President Trump and Doug Collins. Don't be fooled. There's one Trump conservative. Renee Unterman led the fight against abortion, protected gun rights, and delivered tax cuts. Renee's the conservative fighter who will help Trump drain the swamp and hold China accountable. I'm Renee Unterman. I did vote for President Trump, and I approve this message. All right, Greg Bluestein, nothing unusual at all about Renee Unterman attacking one of her opponents, Rich McCormick, for not voting for President Trump. That's pretty standard policy among uh, Republicans these days, whether you stood with or against the president. But Doug Collins suddenly popped up in that at ad. What's significant about that to you? Yeah, that, that's what the, of the two things. The obvious one was the Trump angle, of course. But, the, the yeah, the Doug Collins uh, part of it was very interesting to me. Um, candidates are less concerned now than they were before Republican candidates about cozying up to Doug Collins. Um, and it's just, it's a sign that the, the, the terrain might be shifting. Um, you've seen um, him, Doug Collins pick up some more high profile endorsements from Georgia uh, officials elected officials and former elected officials. And now we're starting to see congressional candidates um, and not just in the ninth district, his home district, but also in surrounding districts like the 14th, 14th and the 7th, um, openly back Doug Collins, or in this case, as Renee Unterman is, invoke his name in, in an ad because uh, polls show, and we got an internal Republican poll leaked to us last week that showed that he's clobbering uh, incumbent Kelly Leffler among Republicans by like a, a double-digit margin, by a huge margin. Um, so you're, you, you, I don't know how quickly or how or how um, profoundly it has changed, but you're certainly seeing that terrain shifting. Let me add a layer, Edward, and then ask you to weigh in. Uh, also this week, Kelly Leffler uh, released three spots her campaign did, 
what they basically say, don't believe what you see, read in the media or hear in the media. But then rather than shy away from the fact that she's the richest woman in the United States Senate, they actually highlight two of them, I think, maybe all three, highlight her, what is that, a G6 Gulfstream private jet that she employed to go down and pick up to other several countries to pick up Georgians who were stranded. Good for her. But uh, there are people who say all they did was point out how different she is from you and me, especially in these difficult economic times. So you're welcome to take any or all of that, Edward. <laughs> well, first off, regarding Renee Uttermann, it shows that uh, that she knows how to read a poll, uh, mm-hmm. at least uh, according to how things look uh, right now. Uh, like Greg mentioned, uh, the latest poll numbers for right now, we don't know what it's going to look like in November, but right now there's about a three-to-one advantage that Collins has over Leffler, uh in among Republicans. So I, so I can clearly see why, with a primary only a month away, um, that uh, Renee would uh, would try to grab hold of Collins' um, coattails. In regards to to Leffler, it also shows that she knows how to read the poll. Uh, and she is who she is. I mean, she is a woman who has uh, an enormous amount of wealth. Uh, the fact of the matter is uh, what hasn't been highlighted in the press so far is her abilities to use that wealth to help people during this crisis. And so given the fact that, you know, every paper uh, and every media outlet and uh, and her opponents highlight her wealth, she might as well go ahead and embrace it and show, yes, I'm, I've got money, but I'm using it correctly. It during times of crisis. I don't you think you know what, Mary. Choice. You know what, Mary Margaret. I think what what Edward just said is absolutely right. Well, for me though, how, where my mind goes is if she's going to put twenty million dollars into a Senate campaign to parrot what Donald Trump says, I would rather her use twenty million dollars into a philanthropy for COVID uh, recovery in Georgia. If she wants to be a leader in helping people, philanthropy may be her best use of her time and her resources. A senator who's only going to parrot uh, uh, the president um, is, is just discouraging to me. We're in unusual times. A $20 million investment in philanthropy in Georgia would mean more than what she's trying to do to uh, help President Trump and help us out. You know, they're attempt to reframe the message. Um, they've seen the same poll numbers that we've seen, and she's got a long road ahead, but they do feel like they have had enough time to – We haven't talked on this show much about the vice presidential sweepstakes that's going on uh, over on the Democratic side, who Joe Biden is going to pick as a running mate. But it's been fascinating to watch the very, very uh, 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 clear campaign that Stacey Abrams has embarked upon uh, to win that slot. What do you make of all that? Yeah, unusually blunt, uniquely direct. I don't know what, what, what adjectives or adverbs you want to use, but she is, uh, she's, rather than being coyly disinterested, she is making her, her objection, uh, objective clear in that she wants Joe Biden to, to consider her for this, for this spot. And look, I mean, there's lots of different um, angles out there. Clearly, she also has one eye on the governor's race in 2022. She's also about to release a book. Um, and so, you know, she, she benefits from having her name out there. But she argues that, hey, I've got a case to make, and I might as well make it rather than pretend like I'm not interested. You know, Mary Margaret, it, strike, it strikes me when I hear people who have criticized her for this that perhaps we're, we ought to remember that Stacey Abrams ran for a Democrat a Democratic candidate for governor what some considered a somewhat unorthodox campaign herself, pushing for progressive votes, being willing to acknowledge that she is a more liberal candidate, not appealing to that old yellow dog uh, Democrat coalition. So the notion that uh, she's doing this in her own unique way uh, strikes me as something we need to pay attention to, whether you want her to be the vice presidential running mate or not. First, I'm just delighted that... uh Vice President Biden is choosing a woman for VP. I want to start there. Secondly, Stacey Abrams has successfully put herself in a position based on being a different kind of candidate, a different generational candidate, a different candidate in so many ways. It's been the basis of her success. My hat is off to her. 
her appearance on Meet the Press uh, Sunday before last, I thought was very moderate in the context of her uh, promoting herself as VP. I thought she set the perfect tone. For instance, she said that she learned a long time ago, her parents taught her that she had to stick up for herself as a young black girl in Mississippi. I thought that was the perfect tone. I think about that among my women friends and all of the challenges we have in politics. We have to stick up for ourselves. And she has done that in a masterful way. Uh, I'm very excited about her future, whether it's VP or governor. She's a star, and she thinks outside the box, which is what we need in this time of, of problems. Uh, look, uh, I've known uh, Stacey Abrams for a decade and a half. I went toe-to-toe with her on many policy differences in the General Assembly. I like her personally, uh, and I admire her in many respects. Uh, for those of us who do know her, and Mary Morgan and I haven't worked closely with her for years, uh, are, should not at, at all be surprised by how she's going about this. She is a very upfront uh, woman. Uh, she is a very formidable uh, woman, and I'm not even remotely surprised. Whether it works or not is, you know, with uh, the vice <laughs> president is another matter. But uh, but for those of us who know uh, Stacy, this is this is classic Stacy. Uh, Greg, I want to I want to use a word twice in this show. A word you already gave me uh, some props for using. She must have been gobsmacked. When uh, Jim Clyburn of South Carolina uh, came out very publicly and said, no, it shouldn't be Stacey Abrams. She's not ready for the job. Maybe it ought to be Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms. That was an interesting wrinkle to throw into all of this, Greg. That was definitely an interesting wrinkle. And making it three Georgians who are being at least talked about for for VP, including Sally uh, Killing Yates, the, the former acting U.S. Attorney um, General, um, whose, whose name has been thrown out there, too. But um, certainly, you've seen Mayor Bottoms' profile rise tremendously as she's pushing back against Governor Kemp's pandemic response. And there's no Georgian who is more forceful uh, in in campaigning for Joe Biden than Mayor Bottoms, who got on very early with his campaign um, in the middle of last year. Well, keep in mind about uh, Mayor Bottoms and uh, Congressman Clyburn is that, to a certain degree, that's a a, a payback to Mayor Bottoms because Mayor Bottoms has been on the uh, vice president's team uh, from the very beginning while Stacey Abrams stood on the sidelines. So I'm not even remotely surprised that someone who backed uh, the vice president during the primaries wouldn't be promoting someone who was an early supporter of the vice president. All right. Well, we're going to watch uh, uh, the vice president Biden, former vice president Biden has been being he's being uh, there are a lot of people in the running here. Should he pick a Midwesterner, an Amy Klobuchar, for instance, uh, Jennifer Whitmer of Michigan? Should he pick an African-American like a Stacey Abrams, a Keisha Lance Bottoms, uh, a Kamala Harris? It's going to be fascinating to see how he ends up making that decision. And Greg, whether the convention is virtual or not, it's one of the things that we in the media, political media especially, love to keep track of and to speculate about, don't we, Greg? It will give us lots of fodder for, uh, for later on this year, hopefully when the coronavirus pandemic has subsided. Oh, gosh, from your lips to God's ears, it's over by this summer, Greg Blustein. All right, uh, that is about it. We are out of time for another Political Rewind. Uh, My thanks to Edward Lindsay, to Mary Margaret Oliver, to Greg Blustein for uh, uh, being with us for the show today. Quick reminder, next Tuesday, it's still a ways off, so we'll promote it again. Uh, The chairman of the State House Appropriations Uh, Committee. Terry England will be joining us to talk about the uh, challenges he's got, he and everybody else in the legislature have with the budget. And Mary Margaret, uh, starting tomorrow, you'll be holding by Zoom committee meetings to look at how you're going to make these cuts, right? That's correct. Well, we wish you well on that, and we all look forward to talking about it again on Political Rewind. Um, Again, my thanks to Kevin Riley who filled in for me on yesterday's show. I was grateful to him for doing that. Also, my thanks to Tom Faust, Sam Burmis-Dawes, and Jesse Neiswanger, all of whom hold down the fort 
with me every day on Political Rewind, but I particularly appreciated the way they stepped up uh, yesterday for the show. Uh, that's about it for us. Uh, remember, if you want to communicate with us, you can tweet us at, at politicsgpb. You can watch us on Facebook Live at GPB News and leave your comments there. And I continue to encourage you, if you want to share your personal experiences uh, during this extraordinary pandemic, I am more than happy to hear from you. I do my best to get back to everyone. Just email me at b. N-I-G-U-T-B, Nigut at gpb.org. That's it for us today. See you all again tomorrow on Political Rewind.